guys, and welcome back to The Biblical Woman. I'm Kat. And I'm Nicole. And today we are going to be talking about a very interesting topic. I know Nicole and I have done so, so much research about this, and we are excited to share what we've learned with you. But before we do, be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you would like to support us, you can do so on Patreon for as little as $2.99 a month. And we would greatly appreciate that if you guys would be willing to do that. But for today, let's go ahead and jump in. We are in the process of doing a two-part series on Christian beauty and sexuality. Both are big, big topics right now. And last episode, Nicole and I discussed biblical beauty. You know, what does it look like? Does it include purity? Does it include modesty? How do I apply it to my appearance? It was such a great topic. You know, go check that one out after you're done listening to this episode. It was like 28 minutes long, so it will not take you long to finish. But today's topic is on biblical sexuality and specifically the horrors of the evangelical purity movement or purity culture. And given the title of this episode and the topic, I do want to throw a disclaimer out really quickly about what we believe here at The Biblical Woman and our main ministry, Simply Devoted. So here's what we believe. We believe that sex is a great God-given thing that should be practiced within the boundaries that he has set. Purity until marriage between one biological man and one biological woman. And if you would like scripture to back up this statement, please reach out to us. We are more than happy to walk with you through uh, our belief on this statement going through scripture. But, Nicole, let's go ahead and jump into this topic. Yes, I am so excited about this topic. It is so necessary as women that we really dive into this and that we really understand what biblical sexuality is all about. Oh, yeah. And I think you had said this last episode, but it just seems anymore the world is definitely twisting beauty and sexuality into things that they're not. So what does biblical sexuality look like for the Christian woman? Right. And so like the definition that you just stated a moment ago, it is the biblical definition of sexuality and marriage. Like you cannot separate those two things. So they go together. And the biblical definition of marriage, that was established in Genesis, the creation of one man and one woman and the two becoming one flesh. That was how God made it from the beginning. He put a man, a biological man and a biological woman together. And, and that is it. And sex within the purpose or the, the marriage covenant relationship is where sex was meant to, to stay and to not be engaged in until that covenant relationship. And I think it's interesting to note that, of course, there's the reproductive biology part to it. That is how we continue our kind, right? But even more than that, it was for the purpose of building intimacy and trust. It was not just for reproduction or, you know, the pleasureful feeling. It was that connection, that bonding between the man and the woman to make the marriage better. And 
our society, our culture, mankind has twisted this. Satan, this has been a great weapon of Satan. It is not, sexuality is not for the purpose of self-empowerment, which is often the message that women are given. Well, and just to give you guys a couple of um, Bible verses to back up what we've been saying, go to Matthew 5, 28, Matthew 5, 8, uh, Ephesians 5, 3. We are going to try to give you as much scripture as possible in this episode. So if you have questions about anything, definitely check out these verses if we do not read them, because the Bible does speak a lot about this topic. Yes, absolutely. And it is made very clear in so many different parts of scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that this is the biblical definition of sexuality. And the verse, the Ephesians 5, 3 talks about not even having a hint of sexual immorality. And so that's a pretty strong statement that tells me that this is a big deal. This matters to God. Like what we do with our bodies matters to God. And there's definitely, I know the thoughts out there, well, it's my body. I can do what I want with it. Yes, that is true. You can, but that doesn't mean that whatever you choose to do with it is good. And I think just remembering that this definition of sexuality and marriage to some, it may seem so narrow and limiting, but we always have to remember that like everything that God has ordained and created and set forth is for our good. It is for his holiness and for our good. And so I think that's just an important point to keep in mind as we continue to talk about this topic today. I completely agree. Today's topic, we are going to be talking about the evangelical purity movement, um, purity culture. Some of you might know it as the uh, True Love Waits campaign. But all of those titles are talking about the same movement that went through North America in the 90s and the 2000s. And it's still shockingly very popular among people my generation today. And as I was doing all the research for this episode, I was shocked to see how many people my age are actually still teaching this. And uh, it's not good. So Mm -hmm. we're going to we're going to talk about this. Let's start at the very beginning with the 90s sex and the church. So when we look back at the 90s, the church suddenly became obsessed with teaching about sex. I think every youth group was like about sex, every meeting we had. Mm -hmm. And it's like, when we look back, it's like, why? Why were we suddenly obsessed with talking about this topic? Well, When we look at what culture was doing, third wave feminism had just emerged and it was dominating popular culture through music and movies. And we started seeing all of these images of powerful women, but we need to call it what it actually was. You know, these powerful in quotation marks, women were really over-sexualized women And as a child, I can remember seeing posters of women in these power poses, you know, promoting that girl power. And you would look at their outfits and they were very racy. They were very sexy and just very Mm over-sexualized. Absolutely. And that was even in the music, like every aspect of it, it was very much that connection of, all right, girl power, feminism, like 
go girl kind of mentality, but it was linked to, yes, this sexual thing, you know, like the, I think we were just talking about the Spice Girls, like kind of classic example, right? Like girl power, but look what they wore and look what they sang about. And so those two things got very intertwined, um, which, you know, nothing is new under the sun. As I always say, we can look back in Genesis and see how, you know, there's always been a connection, you know, sexuality has been misused um, for power. But, but yeah, I think in the nineties, it definitely was very strong. Culture began teaching us that like being sexualized and behaving in sexual ways, you know, that was empowering for us as women. The church, you know, they had to do something to protect their youth and teach biblical doctrine. So they had good motives and they had good intentions, but they established the purity culture, evangelical purity movement. And that was, that was not good. (laughs) Oh man, yes. Let's define what I'm actually talking about. The Southern Baptist Convention at the time was the largest denomination, and their answer to the solution was to create the True Love Waits campaign. And it spread like a wildfire. And we began to see more and more books popping up about the subject, like I Kissed Dating Goodbye and The Bride Wore White, Dateable, and Modest is Hottest. And looking back now, this is all referred to as the North American purity movement or purity culture. Youth groups all across the states began extensively teaching on sex. I can attest to that. This happened in my youth group and like in the 90s that I was like living this as you're everything you're talking about is accurate. Well, and it's so interesting. As I said before, I did so much research on this. And one of the things that I did was I would talk to people, both men and women who lived through this. And it was very interesting to see the gender differences with this purity movement, but it affected both genders and negative ways, uh, just differently. It's good that the church was trying to teach about sex and educate young people, uh, because that is something we do need to talk about with our kids and with young adults. But the answer to the problem was purity rings, contracts, pledge cards, a purity ball. Yeah. Purity balls, Mm -hmm. father, daughter, virginity dances slash promises and numerous talks and books about sex. Sorry to read that off like a list guys, but I had to make sure that I included everything people told me um, that their churches did. Like I said, it's important for us to talk to each other and our children about sex. But when we do so, we need to be, one, biblical, and two, careful on how we handle these topics. With the evangelical purity movement, everyone had good intentions. But the way that we as the church went about establishing purity culture was bad. And we ended up hurting and damaging an entire generation of women and men, but we're going to focus on women in this episode. We didn't mean to. This was done in six major ways. Nicole and I are going to dive into those. But before we do, we need to establish the guiding principle behind purity culture. It was founded on a principle called gender essentialism. And it teaches that women were higher moral creatures than men. Therefore, women became like moral gatekeepers, the moral police. Our job was to guard the hearts of men. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a part of the purity culture movement too, that I remember that I 
took out from that as a teenager in the 90s was there was definitely the message for the girls that watch out what you wear. You don't want to make your brother stumble. And so, well, yeah, there is some we could talk about that. Like there is some truth in that, of course, like, you know, we kind of talked about obviously modesty in our last episode, but it was very much the message that like somehow we were like almost solely responsible for, you know, if our guy friends were lusting after us. And that was, that was a very clear message. And I just remember being a teenage girl and thinking, okay, these are teenage boys. I could be wearing sweatpants and sweatshirt and like, it is not going to matter, you know, but that was definitely the message that was like, we were like you said, kind of the gatekeeper. We had to guard, you know, guard their hearts kind of a message. Well, and something I learned as a waitress during college was like, you can look like a swamp monster and there will still be men that behave very inappropriately around you. Right, right. Absolutely. Anyway, this gender essentialism, it's super unbiblical. The Bible never teaches that one gender sins less than the other. It never teaches that one gender is better at morals than another. Men and women sinned equally in the garden. And if you need more evidence, go read Romans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I included Romans twenty two twenty four just off my notes. And it says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And there is no distinction. It says we all have sinned and we all have fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't say like men sinned more than women. Like Paul's like, no, there is no distinction. There's no gender distinction here. Right. And he's clearly states that everyone needs a savior regardless of your gender. So the founding of the evangelical purity movement was based in an unbiblical viewpoint of sin. Just keeping that in mind that this gender essentialism is very unbiblical And if you want more Bible verses to back that up, I would definitely recommend to go read Romans. Nicole and I identified six pretty big problems with the evangelical purity movement. And we're going to go ahead and share those with you guys. So the first problem was the unbiblical view of feminine sexual identity. This typically manifested itself in the form of metaphors. I recently talked to someone about recording this episode, and she went ahead and shared a talk that she had during her middle school years on sexuality. And they actually did not separate the boys and the girls from uh, this talk, which was interesting because that they normally separated. But the metaphor that her teachers used to teach the boys and the girls about sex and choosing to be sexually active before marriage was a cake. So this teacher made this really nice cake. It was beautiful. Uh, it looked really yummy. She said, like, girls, this represents you. They began talking like, as you have more partners, you know, people begin to take bites out. So one by one, the boys would come up and get to try the cake and each taking, you know, a big forkful and eating it. And finally, she's like, you know, when you finally meet your spouse, you know, this is what you're left with is this like half eaten, destroyed cake. And they actually made a girl carry that cake like down the aisle to the guy that was playing the groom. Wow. 
And they're like, this is what you're presenting your husband is this destroyed cake. That is you. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe a similar, oh my gosh, that's devastating. And I think the, like maybe a similar metaphor was kind of like, if you imagined a heart, you know, and it's like every time you would, you know, it's like you were giving your heart away. And so like you would, yes, then have not your whole heart to present to your husband. But yeah. And I think that was very much the highlight that girls were told was that this, the purpose of this purity is for your husband. So you can give him this most precious and amazing gift. And while yes, there is some truth in that, but that is not the reason. Like the reason that we live according to biblical sexuality is to honor Christ and to honor God, the creator, and to be holy and sanctified for him not, you know, like that was not the message that was presented. It was definitely the message of you're doing this for your future husband. Yeah. And a lot of the other metaphors included like the chipped teacup, the soiled cloth, a chewed up piece of gum. You brought up the like shredded heart. Right. Yeah. And it taught little girls that, you know, their worth is tied to their sexual status. If they sinned even once, they are now worthless, disgusting, unwanted, and probably unlovable to a future spouse. Mm-hmm. They, we didn't mean to teach that as a church, but that's how it came across to so many people. Mm-hmm. When you have such a high emphasis on purity, it becomes an identity for a lot of women. And it did. It was how they define themselves. So when they did finally get married and they had that honeymoon night, Many women felt broken and empty afterwards because they were now having an identity crisis. Right. There was such a high prize on their virginity. And now that that was gone, it was kind of like you said, a crisis. Like, okay, even though it was with, you know, in a biblical context, you know, with their husband and marriage, but still that was a hard mental hurdle to get over. Yes. As little girls and women, we need to find our identity identity in Christ and not in our virginity or our marriage. We need to let God define us. You know, he made us and he made sex, but we should never use that as the sole factor to define ourselves or other women. Yes. I was thinking second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. If you're a Christian, our identity is in Christ, and it's not in your sexual status. It is absolutely in Christ, and that is where we need to find our identity as women, and it's where we need to teach our children that their identity comes from as well. Yes, I could not agree with that more. That kind of leads into our next point of, okay, so what happens if you know, we do stumble um, or, you know, maybe you're a person like you have done some things in the past that, you know, now you're feeling convicted or, you know, ashamed about like, what can we do if we do stumble? And so we want to look at a few things um, from scripture. Of course, that's where we always go. Um, And so we want to look at how did Jesus respond to quote, sinful women? And usually in the Bible, that was a term that meant, right? Women who were either um, had had many lovers or many husbands, women who maybe prostituted themselves. And we see a couple of different examples of this, very powerful examples in the New Testament. Um, when Jesus spoke with the woman at the well, um, she had had five husbands and the woman, or I'm sorry, the man she was living with 
at that point wasn't even her husband. He knew this about her and he treated her with respect and dignity. He broke the cultural barrier of even speaking to her in the first place. And you can read that story in the Bible and it's it's amazing to watch that interaction and just how kind he was to her and how he treated her. And he revealed who he was to her because at that point in time, like not many people knew that he was the Messiah. And so he revealed that to this sinful woman and it just shows that, okay, even if you have lived, you know, whatever lifestyle or made whatever sexual choices, like Jesus still comes near to you. He still values you. He still respects you. He still like calls you his child if you are in him. Um, And then there was the woman who was caught in adultery was big setup. That was the context of that story. It was a big setup to trap Jesus was basically what that was. The Pharisees probably could have cared less of what this woman was actually doing, but they used her um, to try to trip him up and to trap him into saying something that was unbiblical so that they would have reason to accuse him. But basically they bring this woman to him who was caught in the act of adultery. And they said, okay, what are you going to do, Jesus? And he responds, you know, by saying, let he without sin cast the first stone. And so one by one, they go away, right? Because nobody could say they were sinless, of course. And then when he was left with her, he responded to her with grace and truth. And he, you know, said, listen, what you're doing isn't good. I, I don't condemn you, you know, but go and sin no more. So we see that response of of grace. And then in the Old Testament, even the relationship between Gomer and Hosea, um, he used this woman, Gomer, who was unfaithful. She was an unfaithful wife to Hosea, some prostitution going on or adultery. I'm not you know, exactly sure, maybe a little bit of both, but he commanded Hosea to continuously like to take her back. And so through that relationship, it was showing God's faithfulness to his people. And he did this through the use of an adulterous woman just to really hammer home the point of how he feels about us. So we see those, we see those stories and that is the truth that God doesn't shy away from us when we fall into sexual sin, but that he brings us back to him when we've fallen away. And perhaps one of the most famous affairs of all the Bible, all of history, maybe even, was David's affair with Bathsheba and the subsequent then murder of Uriah from David. And we see in Psalm 51 that he is pleading, he's calling out, he's praying to God, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And so David knew he was praying for that because he knew that God could cleanse him, that he could make him pure again. And then a verse from Isaiah, Isaiah 118 says, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red and crimson, they shall be like wool. And I think just this shows that no matter what, like whatever we do sexually or with our bodies or in any capacity, that God makes us pure, even when we fall. So those were some of the examples from the Bible um, that we just thought was important to point out because it does show, okay, this is this is the response of our God when we do stumble. And it is so gracious and it is so loving. And it's a call to repentance and that he ultimately brings us back to himself. 
And I love that you pulled out all of those examples because the problem with the purity movement was that it did exclude the forgiveness of Christ. Mm. It taught young women and young girls that they did make a mistake if they did sin, even if it was once, that they were disgusting and they would be, they should be grateful that a man would love them after committing such a treasonous act. Right, right. I A lot of people brought that up when I was talking to them about this topic. If Christ can forgive us when we bring these sins to him, if he can forgive us, then our potential spouses, our future spouses should be able to forgive us as well. And I personally, I know I've talked about this in the past, but being able to forgive well is a criteria that I think all women should have when it comes to looking for a potential husband is, does he forgive well? Yeah. Um, and this might might be something that you have to talk about. I know for me personally, it was something that I had to talk about with Dustin. And I know I've shared about uh, that experience in the past. If Christ can forgive us for our sins, then our potential and future spouses should be able to as well. Yes, I love that point. That's right on. <laughs> point number three, the third problem with the evangelical purity movement was that it ignored sin and spiritual growth. We became so obsessed with all of these purity symbols that we forgot the gospel. We became so busy making sure everybody signed these purity contracts that we forgot how to, that we forgot to make sure they were actually Christians. <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it really, it failed to underscore the bigger idea of sanctification or obedience to God, holiness. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that might have, I'm sure, you know, as I think back to, you know, the 90s, that was mentioned, that was taught. But like I said, it just wasn't the focus, It, or at least for a teenage girl, that wasn't really the part that stood out, you know, like we mentioned in the, the other point, you know, it was more about for your, it's an act for your husband, not for God. Yeah. And I completely agree with you on that. But that's something that I heard a lot of from people. It's what I read a lot about guys. Like I read dissertations for this podcast. episode. <laughs> <laughs> I tell how my rep went into this episode, uh, but just some verses to really highlight why it's important for us to teach holiness to our kids is Leviticus 20, 26. And it says, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. First Peter 1, 15 through 16, just as he who called you is holy. So be holy in all you do for it is written, be holy because I am holy. That was the problem with the evangelical purity movement was one, we forgot to really make sure that these people were Christians. And it was very much a VeggieTales approach or behavior modification because we need to address the spiritual states of people first. Is this individual saved? If they're not, you're just doing behavior modification and it's only going to be an outward change. You're going to still ignore all of this sinful 
heart attitudes that are on the inside. And at the end of the day, they are unsaved. If they do not get saved, they will go to hell. And so that was the problem with our purity movement was we didn't put the gospel first. And after you're saved, we should begin instruction on holiness because a born again Christian will desire purity. They will desire modesty because they desire to please our Savior. The inward is going to affect the outward. But if you only focus on the outward as the evangelical purity movement did, one, you're going to have a lot of false converts and you're just going to you're going to have a lot of people sign these contracts, wear these rings, and they're not Christians. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that goes back to it wasn't really taught that purity encompassed more than what you did with your physical, with, with your body, you know, that purity, as we were talking about, it goes so much deeper than that. It's our hearts and our attitudes and our minds. And that's, that was largely ignored, I would say. You're right. Like there was such a heavy emphasis on this, that the third problem with the purity movement was that we ignored sin. We ignored spiritual growth and we pretty much forgot the gospel to ensure people were actually Christians. And that kind of leads into our fourth point as to why this was a harmful experience was because if you have a bunch of young adults who are not Christians, you have to give them reasons as to why they should remain pure. But these are not the biblical reasons of, hey, you should be pure because God commands it and you claim to love a holy God, so you should live a holy lifestyle. We created a bunch of false promises that appealed to unsaved masses. Yeah. So promises like, well, if you wait, then you'll get married or you'll have a great husband. That's yes. really how you'll have the best sex life is if you've both never had sex before, you know, you'll just have this perfect family, live happily ever after, and there will be no sexual struggles whatsoever. Yes. And like, those are all lies. They are all fallacies and they just ignore the sinful, painful realities of life and the human condition. I'm just going to rebuttal these one by one. Sure. So the lie of you'll get married, not everyone will get married. Uh, we convinced an entire generation of men and women that they're, they will get married, but we can't promise that. We don't know what God has planned for each individual and marriage might not be that for someone. Right. Uh, the lie of you'll have a great wife for husband. Marriage doesn't make you or your spouse a perfect person. You're still going to sin. You're still going to make mistakes. And yes, they will probably be a great person, but you need to understand to not uh, like idolize them and make them into something that they are not. Right. And I think too, just to kind of add to that a little bit of what was going on in the nineties. So there was this movie called Jerry Maguire and it was super popular. Everybody loved it. Um, but there was a famous line from there, right? Kind of at the epicenter, like of the movie at the end was, you know, the famous line, you complete me. And I think that became almost, um, an anthem of sorts for like what, how people thought about marriage or their partner was that like, you needed this other person to be complete and to make your life the best that it can be. And that was super unhealthy and not at all true. And you're right. I think the church did pretty much adopt that as a motto for marriage. 
But lie number three is you'll have this, you'll have the best sex life ever if you just wait till marriage. This point is interesting to me because listening to women from different generations talk about their honeymoon night, it really highlighted a lot of things for me that I'm, I'm not going to share in this episode. But you need to understand that you may not have the best sex life. And after being told sex is bad for many, many years, many women can struggle with feeling positive about having sex now line of thinking can also create unrealistic expectations upon your partner. And it may take time to establish a healthy, fun sex life. And that's, that's completely okay. And that's normal. Yeah, I think as Christian women, that is important to understand. Because when the world sees that so much of, you know, worldly standards of how they think about sex and relationships is it is all about like that chemistry and is the sex good. And, you know, so if you're, you know, to the world, like, they would look at everything you just said and say, like, use that as a reason that, you know, maybe that wasn't the right person for you. You know what I mean? So, so yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up that point. That was a lie that was very interesting to me because listening to just women from different generations talk about that, just my statement on that, I really tried to encapsulate all of the generations and the differences that they brought up when it came to their honeymoon night mm-hmm. and the beginning of their marriage. Yeah. So line number four is that you're going to have a perfect little family. This one is really hurtful for me personally, just because of my past. And I know so many women right now who are struggling with infertility and miscarriage. We promised a whole generation of women that they were going to have families. Unfortunately, that might not be what God has planned for a woman, and that is very devastating news to accept sometimes. That's just an incredibly hurtful lie. But lie number five is you'll live happily ever after. Marriage will not solve all of your problems. It will not. It will create more. It will amplify whatever you know problems you already have because when you go to a situation where you're living with somebody every day, it just doesn't even logically make sense that then there would be less problems. Yeah. Like for (laughs) real, like you're going to have those bad days, those arguments, those disagreements, and like your spouse will let you down and you will let your spouse down. Right. And you're both still sinful humans. And with this point, I just wanted to highlight to be really careful to not make your spouse an idol. Lie number six is you'll never have any sexual struggles. And that is not the case. Um, You know, there's pornography, affairs happen. That lie just ignores the sinful human heart. You may have sexual struggles within your marriage, and that is something that you need to understand. Uh, So to promise that to a young girl just promise any of these two young women was extremely hurtful. And like I said, they were all, to me, those are all secular reasons of why you should wait to get married. They all focus on behavior modification. And had we ensured that, you know, this individual is a Christian, once they love the Lord, they are going to strive to live a holy lifestyle that pleases God And you won't have to make up these fallacies to promise someone to get them to remain pure because they will just desire to love and obey God. Yes. Yeah. And it comes down to preaching the gospel. 
that's what that is. That's what needs to be proclaimed first and foremost. Yeah. Point number five is the sex abuse survivor. And I won't get too much into this, but given everything that we have said this far, like how must a woman being taught these points feel if she has had a bad sexual experience happen to her? This unfortunately is something that we might have to think about when we are teaching about sex within the church is the sexual abuse survivor whether it is for women or whether it is for young children, because that, that depravity happens. Right. Going back to the gender essentialism, that's a particularly hurtful thing to this point, because if women are the moral gatekeepers, then you are suddenly placing the crime on the victim, whether that's the woman or the child, because they should have been the ones to have guarded their offender's heart. Yeah, that's a good point. So that's just a point that maybe should have been better addressed within the movement. um, But it definitely was not at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think as a church, we are doing better about addressing sexual abuse. So I am glad to see that. But that is point number five. And point number six, our last point, is that it gave an entire generation of women a very unbiblical view of motherhood. I know like this statement is a shocker, but I promise it's true. So let me break it down for you. Yeah, let's dive into this one because I'm like, oh, yeah, I had not really thought about it this way until, until, yeah, I saw your notes and I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah, like... And as you guys are going to see, Nicole and I are going to walk through this argument, but our next episode, we are going to be talking about abortion. And I took our state statistics for, they haven't released 2020 yet. So I did 2019 and everything that we are getting ready to talk about, the numbers of abortion do support. The unbiblical view of motherhood that the church taught was actually the pro-choice argument. And we didn't mean to, but we taught it. We taught girls that sex was awful. It made them dirty, impure, undesirable, unlovable, and they would be lucky if their husband loved and cherished them. We also taught about the consequences of sex Mm -hmm. and we adopted the you'll get pregnant and die mentality. Having sex and getting pregnant was like the worst thing that could happen to a girl. Even just examples of teenage pregnancy, girls who did get pregnant, how they were treated, that reinforced a lot of these behaviors and a lot of these ideas. And just like the movement made false promises about the future, they accidentally devalued motherhood in order to make purity look better. And I highlighted six statements uh, from my research, but I know I heard all of these and I know a lot of people did, is one, you need to finish high school or college. Two, you won't be able to take care of a baby. Three, you need to get a career first. Four, if you get pregnant, people will not accept you. Five, don't you want to travel the world and see new places and like meet new people? Six, don't you want to live your life? You won't be able to do that with a baby. Oh yeah, very much. Yeah, those were definitely all 
the consequences that you heard would happen if you did get pregnant and that basically it was the message in a nutshell that your life would be ruined, your life would be over, you could never have any of the things that you ever wanted for yourself. Absolutely. Like all of those statements, like we did teach those and minus saying a woman's right to choose, those are all statements that women use to justify their choice for an abortion. The church didn't mean to teach that pro-choice argument, but it did happen. So all of those statements that were employed by this movement taught women that sex and its consequences were bad and that they needed to put themselves first in that situation of pregnancy. While no one meant for this outcome to happen, it did. And many Christian women who are my age or older just don't see the value in motherhood. We don't have a biblical view of it. And I think that is why so many women who are my age, um, a little younger, a little bit older, are confused about what their stance should be when it comes to abortion and other issues of the pro-choice movement. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm so excited for, to record our, um, our other episode tonight, the one, um, the interview um, that we'll be doing about the topic of abortion, because I think we will, um, I'm sure, get into more of the specific um, topics that you just brought up and all the reasons that women have used to justify their abortions. And yeah, absolutely. Kind of with the female empowerment and how we think of that now, not only is, you know, sexuality used for empowerment, but I think the the whole concept of education and career is very much a part of that movement of a woman being empowered and a baby just does not fit with that. Even see this like from Hollywood or you you hear it. I have like very specific like famous people in mind who have been super outspoken about like the fact that they rejoice. They are so proud of their abortion or abortions because if they wouldn't have done that, they wouldn't have been able to have the success as an actor that they have now. And they glory they glory in that and it's sick and disturbing. (laughs) That's the only word they can use for that. But yeah, absolutely. All of these points were very much um, tied to like this would happen and it would be horrible. And so don't get pregnant. Or if you do, then you need to have an abortion. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you brought up the Hollywood because there's so much pressure to view pregnancy and motherhood as something terrible. I just want to address really quickly because I know this will go into our next episode But what is the biblical view of pregnancy and motherhood? So I'm going to give you guys a couple of quick verses that I think are very clear on how we should view this as Christians. So Psalm 127, 3 and 4, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Jeremiah 1, 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I anointed you as a prophet to the nations. Psalm 22, 9 and 10, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. That should just, and there's way more verses, um, but that should just tell you how God views pregnancy and how he views motherhood. And I just wanted to give you those verses for our next episode on abortion. 
how we teach our children and others about sex matters more now than ever. You know, our next episode is going to be on abortion and the statistics, they support all of the points that we have just made. Abortion is becoming more and more accessible to women. And, you know, if they have been taught an unbiblical view of sexuality, a worldview that ignores the forgiveness and redemption of Christ, they've been given these false promises and were taught to devalue motherhood through the elevation of self. Hmm. You can imagine just the state of the Christian woman today who lived through all of those things. And I know it's uncomfortable to talk about sex as a parent, as a church leader, but we as the church must educate our children and young adults about sex from a clear and biblical perspective. As parents, if if we don't talk about these topics with our kids, the world is going to do that for us. We're not going to like what they have to say about the topic. I want you guys to understand that Nicole and I promote a biblical view of sex as purity until marriage between one biological man and one biological woman. However, we as the church need to revolutionize how we teach the next generation about sex and sexual ethics. That is my big takeaway from this episode. Absolutely. And like we talked about before, just the need for the gospel to be prominent and the most centralized message is the message of Christ and his work on the cross and his resurrection. And that changes everything. The The sexuality issue is is important, of course, but it is not the, the main focus. It, it flows out of the gospel. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. And if you have any questions about this topic or something that we said wasn't clear to you, please reach out. You can email us. uh, You can use Facebook Messenger, uh, Instagram message, and just reach out to us. And we will be more than happy to answer any of those questions because we want this topic to be as clear and uh, presented as biblically as possible for you guys. So if you do have any questions, please reach out. But our benediction for today comes from 2 Peter 3.18. May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 